Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. I want to try my best to help you understand the work, the ministry, and the book of Nehemiah. So to do that, we need to do a little bit of time travel. We need to go back 2,600 years in history, and we need to do a little bit of global travel as well. So let's go ahead and pull up a visual. That's us moving away from Louisville, and now we are headed to the Middle East. We are zoomed in on the city of Jerusalem. Now that is the aerial image of Jerusalem as it stands today in 2023. But imagine, we're doing not just global travel, but time travel. Imagine we're going back 2,600 years. And so you see, of course, the same overall landscape, but those buildings aren't there. Most of those roads, of course, aren't there unless they were built on top of ancient roads. There's no power grid. It's an ancient civilization. Imagine in your mind 2,600 years ago. And instead of seeing all that development, you see instead what was at that point in history the most powerful army that had ever existed, the Babylonian army, led by this man, King Nebuchadnezzar. And what the Babylonians did was they basically surrounded the city of Jerusalem like a boa constrictor surrounds its prey. And their desire was to choke out the life of everyone living in that town. They laid siege to Jerusalem for two and a half years, allowing nothing and no goods into that city basically starving them to death. The plight of those inside Jerusalem became so desperate that people resorted towards the end of the siege to cannibalism. They were eating human flesh. Some of them even ate the flesh of their own family members. After this horrible siege, finally, the Babylonians were able to walk into Jerusalem and crush that city like an empty Coke can. I mean, they had no strength left. Almost everyone who lived in that city was taken captive and they were deported, sent into exile into Babylon's capital. And not only were the people sent away, the city itself was laid waste. It was decimated. Uh, they, They tore it down brick by brick. That magnificent temple that Solomon had built covered in gold. They melted it down. There was nothing left of the city. And that was the situation for Jerusalem, torn down and rubble and ruins, and for God's people for decades. And then the Babylonians unexpectedly got defeated by the Persian Empire led by uh, this leader, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus came to power. He conquers the Babylonians, and he had a very different Uh, foreign policy than the kings who came before him. He said, it doesn't help us. It doesn't serve our kingdom to have slaves and people we've conquered from all over the world that live in our capital. Let them go back home if they so choose. And while they're there, they will make money, they'll carry on business, and they will pay us taxes. This is like a win-win scenario. So Cyrus didn't force everyone to go home, but he allowed any Jews who wanted to go back to Jerusalem Uh, to head back home under their own free will. This happened roughly in in the year 539, 538 B.C. 
They went back. The very first thing the Jews did when they got back to Jerusalem was they realized we got defeated. God allowed us to be destroyed because we failed to worship him. We didn't honor God. We didn't keep his commands. So the first thing they did was they built an altar. And after building, building an altar, they, they, they made a sacrifice to God. Then they began work on a temple so they could carry on services. But if, if it was just a It was a shadow of the temple that was before. Those who had seen the original temple and then saw this one wept because it it was nothing in comparison with the former glory. But still, they they got the worship uh, reestablished, and that's basically all the strength and energy they had, and they kind of tapped out, and they just got on with life as best they could from that point forward. But they never reestablished their city They never were able to build up the walls and put up gates to allow for them and their families to be protected, which means constantly, for years, for decades, they were exposed to the the greed and the violence of their enemies. They were constantly raided and plundered. Some of them were killed. Some of their goods were taken, never to be returned because they had no protection. Their their temple had been rebuilt, but their city wasn't reestablished. And this was the case for 90 years. Now, communication didn't work back then the way it works now. I mean, we can get live updates on our phones in seconds from when it happens on the other side of the globe. But back then, of course, people had to travel and give eyewitness reports, and it could take weeks, months, sometimes years to hear word. Anytime those, uh, anytime the people who were living in the kingdom's capital would have a friend or a family member go to Jerusalem and come back, they would, they would just hang on every word to hear the report. Like, how is the city that is supposed to be a, a beacon of light shining the glory of God to the world, how's the city doing? How are the people doing? Are they strong? Or, are, are they in good spirits? Or are they weak? Are they discouraged? And we find ourselves in that exact situation to kick off the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the month of Kislev, which they're, you know, they're on the lunar calendar, not us like a solar calendar. So we're talking about late November, early December, the year 445. It's the 20th year of the king's reign. While I was in the citadel of Susa, this is Nehemiah speaking. He's in the kingdom's capital of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He wanted to know how it was going. How's the city? How are the people? And he was so eager, so desperate to to have a report. Try your best if you can uh, to imagine what it'd be like if there was a team that you loved and they were in a really big game. How many of you are U of L fans in here? Probably a decent amount. So imagine you're in, you know, we're going to go back, not 2,600 years, we're going to go back 10 years and Louisville is in the championship game. And you're a diehard U of L fan. You wear red as often as you can, as long as it's socially acceptable in your environment. You, I mean, you're so into it. You know the stats of all the players. I mean, you're into the recruit class from not just, not just next year, but two years out. Like you are, you're all in. And you guys have made it through March Madness and you're in the championship game. And you're not hanging out with friends. I mean, you are focused on the game. It's you in your house. No one is there. Your TV's on. The, 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 the game starts off. There's a tip. You change a few possessions. There's 1850 left in the very first half. And all of a sudden, boom. Your power goes out. And you're like, no, I can't believe this. You think, okay, I I have that app on my phone. I can maybe watch it or at least track the stuff. And all of a sudden, boom, you went from 1% to 0%. Your phone is now dead. 
I got to get to a friend's house. I, I got to get to a restaurant. I got to go, gotta go to, get to a bar. I've got to be able to watch this game. I, I got to see it. You go to your car. <clears throat> battery's dead to your car. And I didn't mention this, but of course you live out in the sticks. You live five or six miles from anybody who could help. So you're just sitting there, wringing your hands. What's going on? Whenever it was that you saw the next like, person, you would grab them by the shoulder and say, what happened? What happened? Did we win? Did we lose? What happened? You would be so eager for any bit of information possible. That is the reality that Nehemiah is in. His brother has returned from a trip to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, tell me, tell me, tell me. How are we doing? But it was not the report that he was hoping to hear. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. I mean, Nehemiah is devastated. He is heartbroken. He is in turmoil because of the plight of his people. And Nehemiah knew exactly what to do with that devastation. He went right into the presence of the most powerful person in the universe. And he prayed. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. He takes all of his concerns right into the presence of his heavenly father. And he pleads with God to move. He does two things that are so powerful and that are such perfect examples for us to learn from. One, he begins with prayer. He doesn't strategize. He doesn't get a brainstorming session together. He doesn't call in the boss or the CEO or the smartest people he knows. He doesn't research it in Encyclopedia Britannica or Wikipedia or wherever you go. He begins with prayer. He goes right into the presence of God. He begins with prayer. That's the first lesson. Here's the second one. This is so beautiful. He doesn't end with prayer. It's not like he says, amen. I've done the good work of starting with prayer and now let go, let God. He's going to take it from here. After he prays, he says amen, he gets up off of his knees, and then he begins to leverage every relational, professional, and financial lever that he has to do something about, to do something about the problem and to be an answer to the situation that exists. We, we heard in the scripture reading in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Sometimes people hear, oh, a cupbearer, and they think this is a low menial task, like they're in the back of the kitchen somewhere washing dishes. The exact opposite is true. The cupbearer to the king was the equivalent of the head of the secret service. This was a person who oversaw the private security detail for the king. He is chiefly responsible for the most powerful man in the world's well-being. If you wanted to kill, you wanted to assassinate an ancient head of state, I mean, today you might hope, you know, for uh, putting a bomb somewhere, maybe a, a long-distance rifle shot to execute them. No, back then, you poisoned their food. So this man is, 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 is the last line of defense to the king. And with that position of proximity and, and influence, he was able to speak directly into the king's life. He had connection to the most powerful man. And with that connection, we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5. If it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And not only does he go to the king with this bold request, give me basically unlimited PTO to go back and do something that I care about. It has no interest to you. I have this project that I care about. Will you let me do something about it? He also then, you can read the rest of the chapter, has the courage has the audacity to say, not only will you give me all this time off, will you also basically give me a blank check and from your own treasury, will you finance the rebuilding of the city? 
And if that weren't enough, he said, you know, there could be some robbers and some, some, some pirates along the way. Will you give me a security detail from your own military to protect us, to escort us? And look at verse 8. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. He goes to the most powerful man in the world. He knocks on the door with some vigor. And because God's gracious hand was on him, not only the front door, but every subsequent door in the entire house gets opened. And so if you can look at this map with me, I want us to realize that Susa is the capital of the empire. And with the king's blessing, he travels down that, down that arrow, roughly 1,000 miles to Jerusalem. He gets to the capital of Israel. And there he begins his mission. The first thing that Nehemiah had to do was to convince the other people who lived in Jerusalem that they needed to join him in his mission because one man, even with the finances, wouldn't be able to do it by himself. He needed other people to lend their effort, other people to lend their energy, other people to lend their vocational skills, other people to give up their time and their passion to join him in this mission. So he gets to Jerusalem and in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, with all of the leaders, all the patriarchs gathered together, he says this, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah needed other people to join him with his mission, but in order to get them to join him in his mission, he had to shake them out of their stupor because not just for years, but for decades, they had become accustomed to their miserable state of affairs. But it had happened so long that they just be they became habituated to it. When Nehemiah heard about it a thousand miles away, he was distraught. He was brokenhearted. He said, he said we got to do something. He wept and he fasted and he mourned and he, he went to his boss. These people were actually living in that city. This was their reality. But they became habituated to it. I'm sure initially it would have brought them frustration and pain. But they got so acclimated that it just became their new normal. It became their status quo and they had gotten comfortable with it. And so Nehemiah needed to shake them out of that stupor. And I think, in effect, if you could condense his entire message, there were just three words. Here is horrible. Here is horrible. Like you've gotten acclimated to it. You've gotten habituated to it. But this is not an acceptable state of affairs. We can't have the, the city that's supposed to bring glory and majesty to God to, sh to, to shine his praise throughout the earth. We can't have it living in disrepair. We can't have God's people constantly subjected to, to pillaging and looting and, and raids. This is not the reality that you want for you and your wife and, and your kids. Here is horrible. Nehemiah came and put smelling salts under their nose to, to, to rouse them out of their slumber. He shook them by the shoulders and said, come on, we, we have to have a new reality. He had to impart his vision to people who didn't have it yet. And every once in a while, we need someone like Nehemiah who lovingly and for the right reasons comes and has a challenging, has a confrontational conversation with us and says those exact three words. Here is horrible. 
You've gotten acclimated to it. You've habituated yourself to this new reality. But we need to come to our senses. Here is horrible. We cannot stay here any longer. Maybe for you, you can think about that addiction that's become a part of your life. But you can remember the very first time you were introduced to it. And the first time you were introduced to it, you were, you were ashamed by it. You said, oh, that was horrible. I'll never do it again. But then that second time, that third time, you're like, oh, I got I to gotta fight this. I got to fight this. But now, in effect, basically the fight is over. And it's just your new norm. But it doesn't need to be. It doesn't have to be. Here is horrible. We need to change. Maybe you remember when your marriage got started in those first few months, those first few years, there was so much passion and so much love and so much unity. And it wasn't just that you guys were on the same page. It's that God was carrying out his, his mission through you. You were serving your neighbors. You were serving your community. You were serving here at church. You were making an impact in the kingdom. But these last few years, something's just happened and the love has grown stale. You're basically just roommates sharing a house. And you've become habituated to it. It's just, it's just the status quo now. And you need someone in love to say, here is horrible. It has been the status quo, but it can be no longer. We've got to do something about it. That's what Nehemiah does when he gathers the leaders. And fortunately, they had ears with which to hear, and they decide to join him in his vision, and they commit to rebuilding the city. So let's jump in now to the next chapter. Chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, rebuilding it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to him. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Now, you could keep on reading in chapter 3, but you're basically going to see the exact same thing. This entire chapter is basically a list of 40 different groups of people, 40 different families, 40 different local communities who came together and all did their part. Every single person decided to take responsibility for a certain section of the wall. And I think this is beautifully displayed in chapters, chapter 3, 19 through 21. Take a look at what we read. In chapter uh, 3, 19, next to him, Ezer repaired another section. Verse 20, next to him, Baruch zealously repaired another section. Verse 21, next to him, Merimoth repaired another section. Look at that phrase, next to him. It shows up 31 times, 31 separate times in this chapter. Next to him, next to him, next to him, next to him. Nobody had to carry out this mission that God had given them alone. They had a companion at their side, and not just one side, but both sides. So they could lock their arms and say, we are in this together. If God has given you a vision for your life, and you have clarity on that vision, one thing you have to know, and you have to know this deep down in your bones, you cannot do this alone. This is not rugged individualism. This is not the self-made man or self-made woman. God created us to carry out his mission in community. And there are times where, honestly, we desperately need others to come to our aid and come to our side and to be next to us. Uh, there is a, a gentleman in my church. His name is Steve. And uh, Steve's, Steve told me two months ago, I saw him at church. He was really distraught. I said, what's going on? He said, my wife just served me divorce papers. So shocked. He was just caught off guard, taken aback. 
I've been praying for him almost every day for the last two months. I want to say eight or nine days ago, I reached out to Steve and I, I just texted him. I said, man, give me an update. How you doing? What's going on at home? I want to read for you the text he sent back. This is, this is verbatim. He says, in what seems like a miracle, God has put two guys in my life to walk with me. I didn't even know them a month ago, but they saw me at church. They asked how I was doing. I was an absolute mess at the time. So I just broke down. I told them everything that had been happening in my life. Ever since then, these men who were strangers have been gold. They text me scripture every single day. They call me throughout the week and they pray with me. They have had their wives reach out to my wife. Somehow, these two former strangers who go to the same church as me have become two brothers who are keeping my hands lifted high, helping me to worship and honor God in the hardest season of my entire life. God had given Steve a mission, repair your home, pursue your wife, see your marriage restored. He didn't know he had anyone at his side, but there's two people at the church he worshiped at who just casually, like you doing social, hey, how you doing? And because he was vulnerable and willing to share and he opened up, he had two people who were with him. And can I tell you something that's special? Just two nights ago, on Friday night, I was at a party. I looked up and I see, I, I see Steve walk in and next to him, his wife was right there. God's beginning to do that restorative work and it can happen when you have companions next to you. And maybe you're here and you, you, you know what God's trying to accomplish in your life, but you feel like you are in it alone. I want to do a little bit of social experiment that might, that might assist you. If you are here and Northeast is your home, like this is your home church, this is your faith family, and you are a follower of Jesus, and that being the case, this is your home and you're a follower of Jesus, you would be willing, you would even be honored to walk with someone in a difficult season to help them carry out the mission in their life. If you would be willing to do that, would you just raise your hand? along with me. You might think that you're in it alone, but you can look around. There's about a thousand people in this room who would be privileged to stand next to you as with the help of God, you carry out the mission that he has given to you. So they start getting to work. All these people, they say yes. They, 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 they start getting some progress. Look at chapter four now, verse six. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. They were fully invested. They were totally leveraged. They didn't work with some other effort. Look, they worked with all their heart. They gave everything they had. And then they started seeing real progress. They were halfway done. The, the end is now actually in sight. It's not just some far off fantasy land. Like they, they, can see, they can see the finish line. But like the enemy always does, right? When you start making progress and you get a little bit of momentum and there's a little bit of encouragement and joy, opposition begins to set in. Look at the next verse. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, those are all their neighbors who were personally profiting on the weakness of Jerusalem. They were the ones doing the raids. They were the ones stealing from those in Jerusalem. When they heard that, uh, that the walls had gone, gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Our enemy said, before they know it or see us, listen, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. See, the Jewish people found out the same lesson that many of you have found out. When you're making progress, when you're on the right path, 
when you're doing what God has called you to do, the enemy doesn't just sit back, relax, and let you go free. He does everything he can to pull you back in and to ruin your life and steal your hope. But Nehemiah responded in the most God-centered and wise way possible. Verse nine, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So they prayed and sought God's help and then they got up and they went to work. Verse 16, from that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. They did not yet have a wall to protect them from their enemy. So the people literally became the wall. And they surrounded those who were doing the work with, with a trowel and with bricks. And there's others holding spears and shields. And they kept the enemy at bay. And then the enemy, unwilling to relinquish their attempt to, to thwart this project, they realized, hey, we can't attack them physically because they're prepared for it now. But they chose other routes. Four different times, if you read the chapter, they, they attempt to, to, to bring an end to the project. Let's just bring up some of those attempts. First attempt was distraction. On four separate occasions, these men sent invitations to Nehemiah. Hey, let's, let's just have a meeting. And Nehemiah just says, I'm doing a great work and I can't, I can't stop. Basically, I'm way too busy for whatever it is you want to talk to me about. He saw behind uh, the, the, the charade. The next attempt was slander. They started spreading false accusations of a mutiny against the king. Oh, you know why Nehemiah is doing this? Because he wants to set up his own kingdom that will rebel against the Persians. And Nehemiah says, you're making that out of your own head. He just dismisses the rumor and says, I'm not even going to give that any attention. The third attempt was discouragement. There's constant insults about those who are doing the work, growing weak, growing tired. I have helped a friend get across the finish line of a, of a marathon, joining up at mile 22 and running with them for the last four miles. And what's my job at that moment? Maybe do a little bit of pacing, but my only job is to encourage. Step by step, you can do this. You got this. You're tired, but it's worth it. You've trained. You can do this. You got this. You need an encourager. These people are doing the exact opposite. You're exhausted. It's not worth it. Look, there's a seat right there. Grab some Gatorade and call it a day. They were trying to convince them to quit, but they refused to give up. What did they do? They prayed, oh Lord, strengthen my hands. And then here is the, 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 fourth, the fourth attempt, false reports of danger. Let us meet together and close the doors because men are coming to kill you. Some threats against his life. And then Nehemiah just says, should a man like me run away? I'm not afraid. No matter what the enemies did, Nehemiah kept his focus. He kept his faith in God and he finished the project. Chapter six, verse 15 tells us the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. Look, in, in 52 days, that city that had lied in ruins, those walls which were in disrepair for 90 years, got rebuilt in 52 days when not just one leader, but all the people in the community came together. They realized, here is horrible. We can't stay here any longer. We're going to do something about it. They didn't just say, oh, that's an unfortunate situation. Thoughts and prayers, God, I can trust you. They didn't just like fast 
and then say, all right, Lord, I've given three days with no food. I've pleaded with you to, to send a miracle from heaven. Now I'm going to get on with my life. When people allowed the brokenness of the world that they became aware of to bring about personal brokenness in their life, to stir that sense of holy discontent, they allowed God to give them a vision, God to give them a mission. They rallied together. They thwarted the enemy. They saw what had basically taken a century to come about. They saw it realized in less than two months. And this civil revival paved the way for a spiritual revival. Once the city was reestablished and the walls were in place with the gates giving them security, that civil revival prepared the ground for a spiritual revival. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. (coughs) So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Did you see how long they listened to God's word for? Look, it was from daybreak till noon. Sometimes a sermon gets going on and on. It's 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this can't go any longer. These people for five or six hours were listening to the word of God proclaimed. And and they weren't scrolling on their phone. They weren't checking social media. They weren't getting an update on the scores. They listened attentively to the book of the law. They were eager. I mean, like like ground that hadn't been rained on for months. They They were pleading for rain to fall. And rain fell on them through the proclaimed word of God. For hours they sat, they listened attentively. And this is what's so beautiful. God did a life-changing work, a character reorienting work in their lives as the word of God was proclaimed. And the same thing can happen today. If you read the rest of chapter eight, you're gonna see three specific ways, three specific ways that their lives were changed and, and their character was altered as the word was spoken over them. First, their weekly rhythms were changed. I mean, the pattern of their day-in, day-out behavior, because these people were neglecting the Sabbath and they were neglecting corporate worship. But hearing the word of God proclaimed, knowing how important the temple was, knowing how important sacrifices were, knowing how important the Sabbath was, they said every single week on the Sabbath, we're going to stop from our work, we're going to come, we're going to worship God and give attention to him and offer him the sacrifices that he deserves. So it changed their calendar. Next, it changed their finances. The wealthy people in the community were committing economic injustice by exploiting the poor. And they renounced that behavior and said instead of exploiting them, they were going to be compassionate towards them. And in addition to that, the people, this was almost everybody, who were ignoring their tithe, who were taking all of their money and and directing it toward their their own personal preferences, They began giving money to the Lord. You want to know what really matters to somebody? Look at their calendar and their checkbook. And the first two things that these people did was get their weekly rhythms right and get their finances right. And they committed themselves to the Lord in those areas. And then the third area is their relationships. They had been fraternizing with some rather unsavory characters. And the people they were spending time with didn't worship God. 
They worshiped false gods, and they were, even if it was unintentional, they were kind of luring godly people into rather ungodly behavior. And hearing the scriptures proclaimed over them, not only did they change their calendar and change their their money, they changed their relationships, and they severed those relationships so they could grow in holiness and look more and more and more like the character of the God who loved them and pursued them and saved them. They were transformed by God's word. I want to read to you some words from a pastor who I love. His name is Eugene Peterson. You may have heard of him before. He said, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. We don't just use scripture, we metabolize it. We take it in and it it transforms us into Christ-like people living on mission for the glory of God in the world. And here's what's a beautiful thing. Once their city was rebuilt and the spiritual revival took place, what took next was a profound, beautiful celebration. I want to bring up a picture of the wall that Nehemiah built. This has been excavated by archaeologists in Israel. Up at the top right of this picture, you can see a grown woman you know, let's just say she's 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, you can see the size of the wall that Nehemiah built. This ain't a six-foot fence to keep your dog in the backyard. I mean, this is a real, a meaningful, sizable fence, maybe 30 feet in scale, that substantively would keep enemies at bay. And once this wall was built at the top, would have been enough space for multiple chariots to be able to go. Be like having a, a highway around your city that you could, you, could, uh, you could walk on to transport goods and to, to, to quickly get to the place you wanted to go. I want to bring up a map of what Jerusalem would have looked like after Nehemiah completed that, this, this wall. Now, you can't see it in close, but every different color on the perimeter of Jerusalem is a section that a different family or community took responsibility for. You see, it's not one color. It's not all black. It's not all green. It's not all orange. Every different color is a section that a family said, this is mine to own. And they built next to someone else who owned a different section. Now, once the city was established and the word of God was proclaimed, Nehemiah gathers 50,000 people, everyone from the entire region together, right where you see that dot. And having gathered everyone together, he takes half of them, they ascend the wall, and they start walking towards the temple on one side. And then he takes the remaining 25,000, they ascend the wall, and they walk towards the temple on the other side. Nehemiah says that they are being led as they walk around the city. They're being led by musicians who are singing and playing music. The people walking behind them in a type of parade are dancing and celebrating. And this has got to feel good because their enemies, when they were trying to discourage them, said, oh, that wall, if a fox climbs on it, it will fall down. Now they got 50,000 strong singing and dancing and marching. And they're saying, how do you like me now? And music and celebration and praise is filling the city of God. It was always meant to be a reflection of God's glory to the earth. And what I want to highlight here is that when the vision was realized, God got the praise. It wasn't anyone patting Nehemiah on the back and saying, hey, here's a a big check as an expression of gratitude. It wasn't the, the honor of men. It wasn't early retirement. All the celebration, 
all the recognition, all the honor went to God. Whatever vision the Lord has given you, I sure hope that is your end. That is, that is, your, that is your dream. Not that you end up with more followers on social media, not that you end up with the people in your life being proved wrong, that you really made something of yourself, you really did something that they couldn't. The end result needs to be that people are giving glory to God. That is a life well lived. That is a vision worth pursuing. This whole story, all of Nehemiah, I really want to encourage you. You can only do so much with 13, 13 chapters in a limited time. This whole book, read it this week. Please take 50 minutes, take an hour. Just read the book. You're going to get so much from it. But this book is about a man who saw brokenness in the world. He allowed it to bring brokenness in his heart. He leveraged his resources. He connected with other people. They carried out the mission. And despite obstacles and distractions and threats, they came to the finish line. And when they did, there was spiritual revival and there was praise and celebration to the glory of God. Nehemiah is an incredible example to learn from for whatever vision God has given you. Nehemiah is one of the most standout, spectacular leaders in the entire Old Testament. But as good as he is, he's really just a signpost pointing to an even greater leader. I want you to think about the comparisons between Nehemiah, who we've just learned about, and between Jesus, because there are several. Nehemiah was in the capital city, in a position of great power, right next to the most powerful man on earth. And he becomes aware of brokenness way back in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't in the capital of an empire next to a king with, with power. He was reigning on high in heaven with all the glory, all the majesty, and all the blessings that come with that. He was at the right hand, not the most powerful man on earth. He was at the right hand of the Father who spoke a word and the universe came into existence. And he looks down and he sees the brokenness, not of a city, not of, not of walls, not of not of gates, not of a small group of people. He, he looks down and he sees the brokenness of humanity. He sees us in our sin. He sees us trapped in pride and trapped in greed and trapped in selfishness and trapped in lust. He sees us destined to spend eternity apart from God because of our sin. And he leverages everything that he has to carry out the mission that he was given. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem Jesus ultimately ended up in Jerusalem. You know, he was born in a manger, born in a stable, lived a life of relative obscurity, lived a life of poverty, lived as the God of all glory con con contained to human flesh with all the limitations and frailties and weaknesses that come with it. And then at the very end of his life, he traveled to Jerusalem. He walked through the walls that Nehemiah rebuilt. But I want you to think about how he walked through the gate of Jerusalem the very last time. He was there like to rebuild God's people, to rebuild God's city. But it was far more grand than Nehemiah ever could. Before Jesus could walk through the gates of Jerusalem that final time, he had just been arrested. He allowed himself to be paraded through a kangaroo court, falsely accused, condemned, spat upon, struck, he allowed ungodly men to strip him naked, beat him to within, to within an inch of his life. Nehemiah carried out the construction, carried out his mission with bricks. Jesus, the master carpenter, carried out his mission by taking two pieces of wood. 
Nehemiah used a trowel. Jesus used nails. They used mortar. Jesus poured out his blood to reestablish the people of God, to bring us together in his name. Jesus accomplished his mission, and you, my friend, are a part of that mission. He, he leveraged everything. He gave it all so that you could be saved, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could enter as a son or a daughter into the family of his father. And if you have said yes to that mission, then you know that he has called you to carry it out, not just to be a recipient, but to be a participant in this great kingdom. What has God called you to do? There are others today who might be hearing that for the first time or you are struck to your heart for the first time like it is time to say yes to Jesus. He is the ultimate leader. He gave, he gave the ultimate price for my salvation. And today can be the day that you say yes to Jesus. You embrace him as the Lord and leader of your life. You come into God's family and your eternity is changed. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this church. You have done are doing and will do such special things through Northeast. Thank you that your love is poured out through this place to change this city and to be an example to this entire region. I pray right now that the words that came from the book of Nehemiah and any words that came from me that were true and of you would ring in the hearts of your people. Those who needed clarity of vision would have it. Those who just needed to carry on the work you've already given them would carry it on. Those who needed to hear for the first time about the gospel of Jesus would have heard it. And whatever you want to do in us and through us would be realized for your glory and the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.